0: Hello and welcome to the AgTech So What podcast. Emerging technologies are rapidly changing the global agricultural industry. and We believe that this revolution is only getting started, but there's still too much hype out there and too big of a disconnect between ag and ag tech. So on this show, we try to bridge that gap. In each episode, we bring you the story of a different innovator in agriculture and try to find the place where ag and tech meet. I'm your host, Sarah Nolette. Today's guest is Murray Shoals. Murray farms with his wife, Emma, in southern New South Wales and the eastern Riverina on the foothills of the snowy mountains of Australia. They grow wheat, canola, lupins, and barley, and run beef cattle and prime lambs. Murray's family has been on this land a while. His great-grandfather came to the area in 1919, so they're celebrating their 100th year this year. They've always been an innovative family, adopting new practices and striving to improve. Murray shares a number of stories on how his thinking has changed and how he's using data and technologies to make decisions. We start off with Murray telling me about what it was like to grow up with a father who was also innovative and pushed the boundaries.
1: It was probably a really great asset to have because it encouraged me to have the the ethos of probably always questioning what we're doing and trying to find a better way of doing things. And so that's how we've always sort of around our farm, we've always tried to find better ways of doing things and ways that either reduce work or give us better agronomic outcomes or more profit, and ideally all three if we can.
0: In 2008, Murray received a Nuffield scholarship, and he set off on a global trip to explore how genetically modified herbicide-tolerant crops were impacting weed management. But how did he get the idea for this?
1: It was actually my wife's fault. (laughs) She encouraged me to apply. She knew I was probably looking to extend myself. I was probably a bit restless and wanted to get out and try and find some more information and grow myself. Um, She's an educator. She actually teaches at a university and we place a great deal of value on education and she really felt I had the urge to want to improve myself and so I'm I'm glad she did it was one of the better things that she's talked me into
0: (laughs) I think a lot of good ideas could be uh, accredited that way (laughs) maybe not surprised although I won't say that for for myself my partner never has any good ideas (laughs) one of the things that I could imagine was that some of your work was potentially controversial in that you looked at a lot of the genetic modification technologies coming online during that time. Did you get pushback or interest, or were, were you right in the middle of that controversy at all?
1: Yeah, I got a lot of both, actually. So with my Nuffield topic, I decided to have a look at how genetically modified herbicide-tolerant crops, what impact they had had on wheat management. And it was quite timely because it was 2008, which was the year that, both New South Wales and Victoria lifted the moratorium on growing GM canola. So I couldn't have timed it better for people to be interested. And so I went and had a look at GM crops in North America, in Canada, in the US. And I also went and looked at organic farming in Europe to see what sort of things that they were doing where they weren't using herbicides. And it was a really interesting time because at that stage, there were a lot of issues with resistance building to glyphosate, and the farming community weren't very aware of it. The researchers certainly were, but the farmers really weren't.
0: That seems confusing to me. That if that was the case, wouldn't the farmers be seeing that, or is it that it hadn't hadn't shown up? How how is that possible?
1: So it was starting to show up. So farmers were starting to notice that they had. Glyphosate resistant weeds, things like kosher and water hemp, palmer amaranth was a big one, especially in the cotton in the mm-hmm. south, the US south. But they had sort of been dealing with it by changing GM technologies, if that makes sense. So, using mm-hmm. a different, moving to a glyphosate resistant crop. But it was quite interesting at that time, there was also very little herbicide resistance in the GM crops in Canada versus the US. And so my findings really came back. At the end of the day, it didn't really matter whether the crop was a GM crop or not. It was more about the management and how farmers were dealing with weeds. So the experience that I saw in North America, especially in the US, was that farmers had walked away from what were a lot of integrated weed management techniques. We didn't call them that at the time, like things like cultivation, crop competition, all those sorts of things that they were doing. And they just sort of threw all of that out and just embraced using glyphosate for their total weed control. And so they put this extraordinary reliance on one herbicide and it was just starting to really fail in the US. Whereas in Canada, they had more diverse rotations. They were still using pre-emergent herbicides and glyphosate resistance really wasn't showing up very much at all and so it was a real eye-opener for me that at the end of the day it's quality of management that dictates success in especially things like weed management you know herbicide resistance is usually a failure of management we've put too much emphasis on one technology and not used multiple efforts to deal with the problem and you know Weeds are very clever. They, if you keep do, hitting them in one way, they're going to work out how to get around it, and and that's what's happened in North America, and it's happened here in Australia too. Australia's got lots of herbicide resistance. Not much of it because of GM crops. Almost none of it, actually. But at the end of the day, it's usually because we've been, you know, herbicides work so well. You know, they're cheap and they're effective and they're easy. And so it's not surprising that as a group we've embraced them because they did such a good job, but then we got lazy and forgot about doing other things so that they kept being useful.
0: Murray's findings that there aren't any silver bullet solutions, especially in natural systems, landed him right in the middle of a global controversy that's still a big one today.
1: So when I released my report, it really I actually had two phone calls the day it was released. One was from a major company that is renowned for their GM products, who um, who will remain nameless, but who really wanted me to change my report. They didn't like the fact that I'd put about GM crops in there and the fact that the technology could fail, even though I really wasn't saying that. I was saying it was the management of the technology that was the issue. And then I also had on the other side of the GM debate, I had people who are very anti-GM, wanting me to change my report to say no, it wasn't the management; it was the fact that it was GM. So, so I was in the middle and getting it from both sides. But when um,
0: when those phone calls happened, how, how did that make you feel?
1: I wasn't very happy actually, because I, you know, I felt that neither side of the argument had actually taken the time to look and see what I'd actually said I was very clear that I wasn't talking about GM technology I was talking about how people use technology and just happened to be that the technology was GM
0: yeah some interesting parallels with technology in general it's not just GM that the tech can get the criticism but like anything it's just a tool and it depends much more how you use it and, and where it's applied in the system
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And for me, the epiphany moment for me on my scholarship was when I was standing in a wheat field in Denmark. It was an organic crop and it was a beautiful location. The Baltic Sea was right at the edge of the field. So, you know, literally three metres from where the wheat grew was the actual Baltic Sea. And they had a real issue with perennial thistles. And they couldn't control them anymore with cultivation because they were too deep-rooted and they couldn't cultivate deep enough to kill them. And so they actually had weeds resistant to cultivation. And it was sort of, it really opened my mind to that, that where you use one technology to fix a problem, whether it be a management or, a, or some piece of technology, if you're only using the one thing to do it, eventually it's going to fail.
0: Murray says this experience was life-changing, really challenging him to be a better farmer and businessman by looking at issues from multiple perspectives. So did he come back with any specific technologies to implement?
1: Probably not a lot. It was probably more a gradual evolution thing, not revolution. Mm -hmm. Certainly it helped me become a better business manager and it really showed me the importance of that. You know, as farmers, while We do a lot of things like we're agronomists and we take a lot of pride in growing our crops or raising our livestock. You know, we are also a business and it really showed me the importance of really having good quality business skills. And that's something I put a lot of effort into afterwards of improving my skills and trying to lift that another level.
0: Murray has made one pretty big change in his operation that came from this approach of finding ways to turn challenges into opportunities. This one required a bit of humility as well. He changed his mind about something, adopting a practice that he said he'd never do.
1: Yes, if you search on YouTube, you can find videos of me saying how much I hate sheep and we now run several thousand sheep. So it was one of those things that watching my next-door neighbour turn his herbicide resistant ryegrass into very valuable prime lambs really set me thinking and what made me interested in doing choosing the topic of looking at weed management for my scholarship was the fact that we'd been dealing with a herbicide resistance issue in our cropping program and you know it was taking a lot of effort and a lot of money and having an impact on our profitability and here's my neighbor he's just turning it into something quite profitable and desirable in prime lamb and so that really got me thinking and I went and did the executive program for agricultural producers at Texas A&M a few years back and that encouraged me to think about you know where's opportunities in problems and so we sort of looked at it and decided maybe we should be running sheep and when we when we sat down, we thought, well, why is it that we don't like sheep? And it was it was usually because we had, it was hard work. You know, every time you did something with them, it was stressful and gut busting. And, you know, so we looked at it and went, well, what's the price of a new set of sheep yards? And it actually wasn't that expensive. You know, it was less than the price of a new ewe. So we put in a new set of sheep yards when we bought some sheep and Suddenly they weren't that much hard work and the profitability and the ability to deal with issues like the resistant ryegrass and make it into a more profitable product has been quite a success for us. And it's probably led us down the road of evolving our farming system to be probably less risk-based. as the climate seems to be evolving and becoming a little bit more variable growing crop as a main enterprise has become more and more risky because you're putting in a lot of expending a lot of money and running livestock is probably as as part of the business is sometimes it's probably maybe a little less profitable on a per hectare basis though the last few years it hasn't been but It's also much lower risk because you're not spending so much money up front and then having to wait six months or longer to get an outcome that's dependent on the weather.
0: Hmm. It's interesting. I I think the cold hard facts approach to some of these decisions would lead to, you know, quicker change. I think doing the the calculation on the yards and then buying the sheep and looking at this, but that's not really how people make decisions, right? There's lots of emotion wrapped up in it. For you, were were you thinking about the YouTube videos where you had said that you didn't like sheep when you were getting sheep? And was there any element of, of pride in that?
1: Oh yes, very much so. You know, and I still get mocked when I go into town sometimes and people stir me up and say, "Um, how do you like that wool check? Um, (laughs) You know, I quite enjoy it, to be honest. You know, and that's one of the things I say, you know, I still don't terribly love sheep, but gosh, I like the check (laughs) at the end of the day. And that's, at the end of the day, we're running a business. And while it's important to be doing what you like in your workplace, at the end of the day, it's also gotta be a profitable business. And for us, we looked at it as part of a system. And so our farming system has evolved and sheep have let us make some changes that have, we think have increased the profitability and certainly reduced the risk. So while I don't totally enjoy being um, mocked <laughs> for changing my mind quite so dramatically, I do know that for us, it's been a very successful outcome, and I, I would do it again. I should have probably done it earlier.
0: It's it's such an interesting theme because um, when we started talking here before, where you were talking about your dad and how that kind of challenging different mindsets, and and that was something you learned from your field as well, and then you've actually implemented it in, in the business. So it's, it's quite a theme, actually. I imagine it's been, it's not easy to make tough decisions and it's not easy to push the envelope. H- have you taught this kind of thick skin and evidence-based decision-making to, to your kids? Are they, um, are they learning some of the same lessons?
1: Yeah, definitely. We're very much believers in data and using data and evidence to make decisions. And we've certainly encouraged them to do the same same mm. thing with their own lives and you know to make their own choices but to encourage them to look and not just look at one source because we all get quite passionate about various things that we care about and we can often we can sometimes gild the lily a little bit in how good things are and so mm. it's really yeah, you know, we've really encouraged our kids that if you're going to think about something and take a position, make sure you've considered it from multiple points of view, not just the first one you've heard.
0: This theme of data-driven decision-making is a big one in ag right now, at a time when emotions are running hot and decisions are not always evidence-based. One especially complicated area is ecosystem services and natural capital. Recently, Murray took a hiking trip to Switzerland with his family, and this has shaped some of his views.
1: Yeah, we had a very enjoyable family holiday. And part of that was um, we went for a hike through the Swiss Alps. We got out of a train at the top of the path and walked down a valley through the forests and then down through the fields, the meadows, through a couple villages where there was milking cows with their bells ringing. And it was incredibly beautiful landscape and an incredibly enjoyable afternoon but my wife and i spent a fair bit of it discussing about the what was going on around us you know the fact that there was a lot of these small farms you know the the houses were in the villages and the barns for the cows were on the back of the houses so you know the cows were actually coming through the village and it was a really interesting place and it showed we did a bit of research and I discovered that, you know, most farms in Switzerland are incredibly small. Like I believe the average is only twenty three cows per farm. But they still are quite from what we could see, they look like they were doing quite well financially and apparently they're paid quite a bit of money to provide ecosystems and social outcomes so that the farms are still occupied and that the they get paid not to spray the flowers out of the meadows and it it was a really um, interesting experience because it showed that there are successful models out there. The society has chosen they want people to be living in the country areas and they want them to manage that countryside so it's pretty and not only pretty but it's um, providing environmental services like protecting the wildlife and the flowers and the trees and all that sort of stuff. And here in Australia, we've got a very different culture and I'm not suggesting that we're about, to, that we should go down the road of getting direct payment to manage ecosystems, but it, it does sort of temper the argument that there aren't people out there that aren't successfully doing it. You know, it can be done and it can be done very well.
0: This is a complex issue for sure, and there aren't easy answers or solutions. One thing that we believe can help is, maybe not surprisingly, technology. Because with new technology comes new business models and the ability to break trade-offs. So I wanted to ask Murray about the tech that he's using, how he's using data to make decisions, and how it's changed over time.
1: Yeah, we've been a big user of technology. I like my gadgets, I must admit. And so we've been keeping electronic records of, of what we do on the farm since 1997, which has been, wow. for the first 10 years, we sort of wondered, well, I sort of wondered why I was doing it. But it's given us a massive database that we can go in and have a look at and take a long-term view of what. Different practices give us financially as well as uh, agronomically, which has been. It's the value of big data. Um, if you haven't got that data set, you can't find the information. And building up the data set was hard work. But as we go forward, it's been a really, really useful tool. And it's been to make some of those more difficult decisions. It's been very valuable because we can look in and go every paddock on our farm. I've done a gross margin of for 15 years. So I can tell you how much money we've made off that paddock in the last 15 years profit. And you know, so that's given us the ability to pick out some of our paddocks that are lower performers and go, okay, we're probably better off turning these into pastures, long-term pastures, because they are too high risk because they're actually, the thing that actually knocks the profitability of those paddocks is that they get too wet. It's not the dry, because in dry years, every paddock gets hammered. But in the wet years, the paddocks that get really, really wet also get hammered. So, so we've sort of taken that strategic decision. Because we've got the data to back it up, it gives us a lot more confidence to make the decision to change.
0: Murray says that having all these data has allowed him to ask and answer questions that he didn't even know he had.
1: The ability to go in and ask questions and find out information is really, really quite valuable. And when we started, I didn't think I'd be wanting to know all sorts of things. You know, you sort of, you don't know what you want to ask until you've got the database and you realize you can ask the question.
0: Is there an example of something like that where you never would have imagined asking that of the data and now you've found it useful to have?
1: Things like just sitting down and working out, say, how much fertilizer we've put in and taken out mm. over the last 20-something years. If I had to do it manually, I wouldn't take the time. Okay. Whereas because I've got the database, I can actually do it in about 30 seconds.
0: Wow. That's, I feel like that's everyone's um, dream now is they want a, a system that they like that does analytics, but they also want uploading of the records for the past 20 years and um, no one unfortunately gets that unless someone enters in all those back of the envelope calculations somewhere. Exactly
1: yeah exactly and like I wouldn't like to be start trying to start where I am get to where I am now starting from scratch it's it's really difficult to, to you know it just takes time there's no other way you can do it really.
0: Another technology that Murray has used with some pretty great results is variable rate
1: so we've been using things like auto steer and yield mapping for a long time and about 5 or 6 years ago we actually got into ph mapping and we've we now do variable rate lime which has been a big win win for us because it's helped reduce our costs and we've gotten a better outcome because we'd have places where traditionally we'd just put, say, two tonne of lime per hectare every so many years. And now with the testing, we can find spots that actually need four tonne to the hectare. So if we'd put the two tonne on, it still was going to have issues. And at the same time, there was other areas that maybe only needed one tonne or half a tonne. So we've been able to reduce our overall consumption of lime but get a much better outcome. And we're seeing that flow through then with the yield maps. We're seeing a lot more evenness. And the other thing that we're seeing out of it is where the really, really acid patches in the paddocks were tended to be where we'd have issues with weeds because weeds often tend to be slightly more acid tolerant than the crops we were trying to grow. So it's been also an integrated weed management technique, which we weren't at all expecting, but it was Mm. a great outcome.
0: A positive example of un, uh, unintended consequences as opposed yes, to the negative ones. Yes. <laughs> yes. Murray has also looked at software to help him and his team manage tasks and keep a shared to-do list of the jobs that need to get done.
1: We certainly use a number of apps. We're just using a new one now. I've got several people work for me and we have a management app that lets any of us put on tasks that they see that need to do. And if I'm not on the farm, I can actually just look up my phone and see what's been done and what hasn't been done. And so that's been a real real help to us to improve our efficiency and it lets me not be on the farm quite as much as I used to be, which is also helpful. So um, that's been a winner.
0: In looking at so many different technologies, including apps, Murray has some advice for ag tech companies that are developing or trying to develop new tools for farmers.
1: We've probably wasted a bit of money and time trying stuff over the years, but I think one of the things I've worked out is that if you've got a problem, the technology is probably going to be a lot more useful to you. If you've if it's the technology that's providing a solution is going to be a lot more useful to us, mm. it's one of the things I see a lot in technology is that, in people trying to sell software or apps, they're trying to sell solutions to problems that might not even really exist. I think if I could give a message to software developers is to actually go out and find the issue and fix, work out how to fix that first and really get that working really well and then move on then.
0: Another thing that he's come to appreciate is the importance of simplicity.
1: One thing I found is because I I spent about six months trying to find something that was workable because a lot of the programs that are made for city-based businesses have a degree of complexity. Mm. Some of them are quite complex and difficult to use for, you know, and I didn't want my staff having to sort of afraid to use it because they were worried they would stuff something up or they were higher cost or, yeah, they just weren't really working that well for us because they don't need to be as complex because we're not shifting lots of data around and that sort of thing. Mm. So, yeah, I reckon there's probably a market in the ag sector for more of those task sharing software that is simple to use but has the ability to get more complex, to add complexity to it if you need it. Mm,
0: Great. Well, we'll have to get you more involved in the ag tech space. I know there are a lot of startups that would really benefit from your knowledge and your um, open mind and your approach to start with problems and, and find solutions. So I think there's a big opportunity there. I guess I'll, if it's alright with you, I'll share your um, Twitter handle as a place for people to, to look or follow or find more out about you. Is there anywhere else that they should look to, other than the videos that I'm sure they'll Google to hear you criticizing sheep?
1: <laughs> anywhere else um, they should look to find you? Yeah, we, you can also find our business on Facebook at Shoals Farming. Okay. We probably don't update it quite as, as much as we should, but we like to share with some of the interesting stuff we're doing.
0: Yeah, great. I will um, include a link to that as well in the show notes. Um, Excellent. Well, thank you so much for, um, for joining me on the podcast.
1: It's been a great uh, honor and privilege to talk to you today.
0: Thank you for joining us on another episode of AgTech So What. You can stay up to date with the latest episodes and news at agtechsowhat.com. And as always, if you have any feedback or other guests to recommend, we'd love to hear from you. Just hop on the website and leave us a comment or send us a message. Finally, if you like what you're hearing, and we hope you do, please share the podcast with a friend or leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Catch you next time.